0: our Bibles and today's study, for those of you who just came in today, let me say that we are in the third of four messages on the general theme wherein we differ from traditional fundamentalists. As we said earlier, the trend today is to minimize our differences and to emphasize the things about which we agree. Now, this attitude might be justified if it concerned only minor or non-essential differences, but not on vital and far-reaching Bible truths that affect our salvation and our Christian walk. I'm sure that those who are here at this conference for the first time have noted that not everyone agrees with each other. Not all of our pastors always agree in every detail. But that's healthy, and that's good. And we've heard some things from this pulpit that I'm sure some of you have wondered about. You may hear something during this next 45 minutes that you wonder about. (laughs) But I hope you'll look into it for yourself and take your Bible out and study. I never think it hurts to talk about controversial things because really uh, that causes people to go to their Bibles to find out whether it's so or not. And I hope that every one of you will do just that. And though you may hear some conflicting things here, uh, remember that that's how we learn. And I hope it'll drive you to your Bibles and you'll begin to really do some studying. Our subject today is a very controversial subject, the subject of baptism. Now, it's not our desire in this message to be contentious, But let me tell you that we must stand for the truth which we know, and we must stand for the truth that God wants proclaimed today. Thus far in this series, we have considered wherein we differ regarding this distinctive Pauline revelation, which was hid in God until revealed by the glorified Lord to the Apostle Paul. We have talked about the church or God's called-out assembly of this age. One of my pastor friends here said to me, he said, you know, really there's no justification for calling this period of time in which we live now the age of grace. He says we're living in an evil age. And I have to think that over. I know that we're living in an evil age, but I think it could be said that it's also an age of God's grace. If it wasn't for God's grace, you know, we would have judgment rain down upon this wicked world. But uh, I don't know. I, I think it's just a very minor technicality. But anyway, we are living in a period of time that is an evil age. I agree. But we're also living in a period of God's grace, whether we call it the age of grace or not. Now, many people believe that the church began at Acts 2 and others began believe it began at Acts 28. I have said that I believe it began someplace around the middle, maybe Acts 13, huh? Anyway, we won't be dogmatic about that and we won't argue about it. We're going to have a good time together in the Lord. Today, the subject of baptism. Some years ago, there was an article in our Denver paper which said that uh, the writer believed that the great uh, common uh, truth that would unite all denominations is that of baptism. He called it the great uniter. I wrote an editorial for our paper, which we put out every week. We, we uh, have an a, um, editorial that appears every single week in our Adams County paper, which is north of Denver, and it's distributed free to every home in the area, so a lot of people read it. A lot of preachers read it. Now, I get telephone calls and letters from folks who uh, disagree with some of the things we say occasionally, but anyway... I wrote an editorial, The Great Divider, and uh, I believe sincerely and earnestly that there is no Bible truth or doctrine that has been so misinterpreted and misapplied as the doctrine of baptism. Now I'd like to point out some things that the Berean Bible Fellowship rejects regarding baptism. I'm using the word in a general sense now. We do not believe that baptism is a minor and unimportant doctrine in the Bible. Some, you know, have said baptism isn't an important doctrine. It isn't really necessary. And if you feel led, you should be baptized with water. However, the scriptures contradict that attitude, as all of us should know. Mark 1, 4 and 5. Turn with me to it, please. Mark 1, verses 4 and 5, familiar to every one of us, speaking about John the Baptist. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Mark 16, 16. A portion of what we call the Great Commission. What some people call the Great Commission, I should say. Mark 16, 16. Well, let's read verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. That's wonderful. If we could stop right there. But we have to read on. And the next verse says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe, and so on. Some folks take one of these verses, some take two, and some take all of them. I think it's very dishonest, isn't it, to take one verse out of context and leave the rest go. We ought to always read what goes before and what follows after. The Berean Bible Fellowship does not believe that the doctrine of baptism always refers to a water ceremony. If you were to talk to the average person who attends church somewhere, Practically everyone has the idea that baptism always refers to some kind of water ceremony. Some insist that it means immersion. Perhaps it would be more correct to say that it means submersion, if you want to have immersion. Submersion for those who are baptized in this baptism, never come back out again. But I notice that everybody who is baptized with water always comes back up. Like Pastor O'Hare used to say, they put the old man under the water and the old man comes back out of the water. <laughs> I'm not trying to be facetious now, but uh, but that's the truth, isn't it? There are at least five different baptisms mentioned in the couple of verses that I'd like to have you look at now. Matthew 3.11. And I'm not giving you anything brand new because this is truth that all of us have read if we know anything about the gospel of grace and the word rightly divided. Matthew 3.11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now there are three baptisms in that one verse, and none of them are the same. Water baptism, spirit baptism, and fire baptism. Now some try to read into that verse uh because it refers to fire the uh, fiery tongues that appeared on the day of pentecost but verse 12 of course uh disproves that theory because it's speaking about judgment in verse 12 and so here we have three baptisms in one verse let's take a look at Luke 12:50 which is very familiar to all of us who have studied this subject verse 50 of Luke 12 but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how am I straightened or pressed till it be accomplished the words of the Lord Jesus after his water baptism of course he was talking about his baptism of death upon the cross And uh, he wondered how many there were who would be willing to follow him in that. None of us could follow him in that baptism, could we? Because in his baptism for the sins of the whole world, he alone could bear those. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. Now these are verses that I very often called to the attention of friends who want to know about this subject, and especially those who think that baptism always refers to water. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, the revises for brethren, you see it's connected with what has gone before in verse 9, or chapter 9 rather. For, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Of course, the reference is to the crossing of the Red Sea by the children of Israel. And uh, as they went through that great body of water on dry land, they were baptized into Moses. They didn't get wet at all, did they? It was the Egyptians who followed them that were baptized with water. (laughs) Yes, indeed. You see, When we read these passages of Scripture, it is very evident that baptism does not always refer to the water ceremony. It has been correctly said that there are some 12 New Testament baptisms, only five of which have any water in them. Now, I urge you to get the little booklet by Pastor Charles Baker, excellent treatise on the subject of baptism. I don't know whether we have it back there or not, but I'm sure that we can get it for you. It tells of every single baptism in the Scriptures. And uh, as we learn, only five of those that are mentioned in the New Testament have any water. Water. We do not believe that water baptism was first instituted in the New Testament. What does the scripture say about that? Turn with me to that passage that we heard at our licensing interview. One of our brethren gave this to us, and I thought it was an excellent answer. Turn with me to Exodus 29. Now this is, as I said, something that many of you already know, but there are some in this audience who perhaps do not know this, and I say it especially for your benefit. And if you know this real well, I hope you will pray for those who may not be sure about this question of baptism. Exodus 29, verses 1 to 4, and this is the thing that thou shalt do unto them to hallow them "...to minister unto me in the priest's office." It's talking about the induction of the priest into the office. "...take one young bullock and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread and cakes unleavened, tempered with oil, and wafers unleavened, anointed with oil, of wheat and flour shalt thou make them. And thou shalt put them into one basket, and bring them in the basket with the bullock and the two rams." And Aaron and his sons, thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall baptize them with water. The word in the Septuagint is baptized. Here it's translated wash. Look over with me at First Peter. Oh, wait a minute. First of all, Le- Le- Leviticus 14, which again refers to this cleansing ceremony, Leviticus. Chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. The pages of my Bible stick together constantly here, and I have an awful time trying to get them separated. It's Leviticus 14, verses 8 and 9. And he that is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, and shave off all his hair, and wash himself in water. The word wash again in the Septuagint is "baptize." Notice it says he shall baptize himself that he may be clean, and after that he shall come into the camp and shall tarry abroad out of his tent seven days. But it shall be on the seventh day that he shall shave all his hair off his head and his beard and his eyebrows, even all his hair he shall shave off and he shall wash or baptize his clothes also. He shall wash or baptize his flesh in water and he shall be clean. The cleansing ceremony regarding sin and defilement not only of the priests, but of the people in general. And when we learn that Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, and I'll just give you the locations of the verse, Exodus 19, 6, and 1 Peter 2, 9, also Revelation 20, verse 6. All of these three passages speak of the nation Israel as a kingdom of priests. Small wonder then that John the Baptist when he came on the scene in John 131 speaks of this cleansing ceremony. Turn with me to John 131. We had our brother Watson here for several days this week in our conference. We were so glad to see him an old friend of ours, and Pastor Walson, I remember him telling how years ago when he lived in the Chicago area, he uh, used to listen to Pastor O'Hare on the radio. Pastor Walson told me that his wife uh, used to keep egging him on to listen. She said, now you ought to listen to that, Pastor Wasson, he said, I became so angry, I decided one day I'm going to tell him off. And he said, I went up to the church where I knew he would be because he was on the air every day around noontime. He said, I went up there and uh, he said, I got there just in time for Pastor O'Hare to go on the air. So he called me into the studio and he said over the air, we're so glad to have our brother Wasson here and we're going to ask him to lead us in prayer. And it was, it, was, it was really kind of amusing, but, you know, uh, Pastor Wasson couldn't do anything about getting out of that. And he said, you know, Pastor O'Hare pointed out to me John 1.31. And he said, I couldn't get away from it. I'd like to read it here this morning. John 1.31. And I knew him not. That is, I didn't know the Lord, the Messiah but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. I hope every one of us who may be a little dubious about water baptism and the fact that it had to do with the people of Israel in the Old Testament and on into the Gospel account and on into the early chapters of Acts, I hope you will think over the expression and the truth that John the Baptist is pointing out here. I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come baptizing with water. Here is the reason that John the Baptist baptized people with water. The BBF does not believe that water baptism is a testimony to the world. So often that is said. I remember being at a baptismal service many years ago. I had just begun to see something of the word rightly divided. And a pastor friend of mine, in fact, It was our privilege to lead him to the Lord when he was a high school boy. He asked me if I would please come to the service. He said, I know that this is something I ought not to do. But he said, I'm going to explain to them the real purpose of baptism. Well, he tried his very best to show that water baptism had no part in God's program for today. And then he had to go ahead and baptize about six, seven people. And you know, I sat in the audience, I just prayed somehow that the Lord would help him and some of the people who were in the audience. As I watched that ceremony, the audience laughed out loud. It was almost like a comedy. I couldn't laugh, I just felt sickened at heart. And I had the opportunity after this thing was over to talk to my friend. But I thought to myself, if this is such a sacred and important part of our Christian life, why should people who are professing Christians sit there and just laughed throughout the whole thing. Well, it was a little amusing, I have to admit. The pastor was a little short man, about like that, and he had some people that he baptized that were about like that. And he couldn't hardly immerse them. And so it was a little bit amusing, but like I said, I didn't feel like laughing at all. May I say that Very few of the world were in that service. And most baptismal services are not out in the open where a great crowd of ungodly people watch them. Really, if you wanted to be a testimony to the world, you ought to be baptized often, as Mr. Stam says. This ought to happen regularly, every week, maybe every day. But of course it isn't. No, our testimony to the world is not by submitting to a water ceremony. Our testimony to the world is by our godly lives and by our consistent testimony. This is what is a testimony to the world, and I'm sure all of us agree. Mr. Stamm has written that water baptism is a testimony, all right, a bad one. It's a bad testimony reflecting upon the finished work of Christ, reflecting upon our completeness in him. Someone asked our brother Stamm, and I read it in one of his booklets, what would, would be wrong with being baptized with water? And Mr. Stamm answered uh, a classic answer. I always remembered it. He said it would be no more wrong than going out in the backyard and offering a blood sacrifice. Think that over. None of us would go out and offer a blood sacrifice, would we? Neither ought we to submit to an ordinance that was required for salvation. We do not believe that baptism, water baptism, is a type or figure of the Spirit's baptism. We answer this. The type or figure always preceded the antitype or the reality. In the Old Testament, God's spotlight was focused upon his Son that was to come. And it cast shadows before it. But now that the reality has come, there is no need for the shadows. I remember years ago I had an interview with a good pastor friend of mine. We worked together for many years in Bible camp. And when he found out my doctrinal views which, into which I had just come shortly before that, he asked if I wouldn't come over to his study and I said I'd be most happy to do so. We sat down together and spent a couple of hours going over the scriptures. He agreed with me that there could be no water essentially in Romans 6. But he said, isn't it true that water baptism is a figure or a type of that Spirit's baptism in Romans 6? He insisted that water baptism symbolized burial. And I tried to show him, as new as I was in what we call grace truth, I tried to show him that water baptism was a type of cleansing. And I referred him to some of the verses that we've already looked at this morning. And I said, no one was ever buried in water. In Bible times, they were buried in a tomb. The Lord Jesus was, born, was buried in a stone tomb, and a great stone rolled in the mouth of the tomb, certainly not in water. And then we looked at Mark 7, 1 to 8, and you can turn there, if you will, where we read about the baptizing of cups and saucers and plates and tables, baptisms which the Pharisees added to the Old Testament cleansings and washings. Mark 7, and I want to read these verses, the first eight verses. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashing hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash, and the word wash here is baptize, except they baptize their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they baptize, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the baptizing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unbaptized hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. How be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, and laying aside the commandments of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. The word wash and wash in here is the word for baptism or baptize. Here, the Pharisees, the religious people of that day, baptized utensils and tables. You see, the water ceremony was not limited to human beings. Furthermore, the BBF does not endorse the Teaching that says that water baptism and the Lord's table are the two ordinances of the church. I heard that all my life after I was saved as a young lad. I've always heard that, and I still hear it. When I turn the radio on once in a great while, especially when I'm going to make some calls going to the hospital or something else, I snap on the car radio, and there we have a Christian station in town, and uh, they call it that, and uh, they have a lot of religious programs on there, and uh, I'll tell you, you should hear some of the things that we hear over the air. Of course, you hear them here, too, don't you? And it's always said that water baptism and the Lord's table are the two ordinances of the church. But if you didn't already know it, let me remind you that never is water baptism and the Lord's table linked together in Scripture. Never once we agree that water baptism was an ordinance because it was imposed, as we'll see. It was required for salvation and the forgiveness of sins. But ordinances have been nailed to the cross. Colossians 2.14. Look with me at Colossians 2.14. What an important verse. Here's one you should underline if you haven't done so already. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And then verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Oh, how many are satisfied with the shadows. The Lord's table, on the other hand, which we will be commemorating this evening, is simply a memorial. That's what we call it. I know that it's called an ordinance, and uh, it has several other names, and many people think that the Lord's table, like water baptism, can take away their sins. The Lord's table, however, is simply a memorial to remember the Lord. This do in remembrance of me as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11. And in case you wonder why we practice the Lord's table and not water baptism, because the Lord's table was a part of Paul's revelation. It was a part of that which the glorified Lord gave to him. And this is the reason we practice the Lord's table. Now, what do we believe about baptism? And uh, it's just 16 minutes to 12, and I'll watch that clock closely, and we'll be through shortly. What do we believe? Now, I've given you the negative side. What we don't believe, what do we believe? We believe that water baptism was imposed on Israel while the nation was still in God's favor. Turn with me, please, to Hebrews 9 most familiar passage. Hebrews 9, verses 8 to 10. The Holy Ghost, this or thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the the first tabernacle was yet standing, the Schofield margin says, yet had a standing, which was a figure or a parable or an object lesson for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect or complete as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only, or these Ceremonies only had their standing in meats, drinks, and divers baptisms. The word washings there is the word baptisms. And carnal ordinances. It's interesting, isn't it, that the baptisms and the carnal ordinances are linked together. And it says they were imposed on them until the time of Reformation, or the time of setting aside of Israel. Water baptism was an ordinance, and it was imposed upon the people. It wasn't something they could do if they felt led. It was required for the remission of sins. How could anyone say that water baptism in the Scriptures isn't important? tremendously important. We do believe that water, baptism, and the sign gifts are inseparable. Every water baptism in the book of Acts was either preceded or followed by some miraculous sign. A number of years ago when I was still on the road traveling I became ill for a couple of days in California Brother Fulstra (laughs) and uh, they put me in the hospital (laughs) and uh, while I laid in that hospital bed I had my Bible there and I looked I read through the book of Acts again and in every place where they had a water baptism in the book of Acts, I noted that either before or after that water baptism, there was some miracle or sign. And I took a red pencil and I drew a line from the water baptism to the sign. I have them all connected. In case you haven't done that, you ought to read the book of Acts again and find out for yourself. And like Pastor O'Hare, and I mentioned him several times because the dear man of God was a good friend of ours, we had the privilege of being with him on the radio for so many years, and uh, I didn't know a thing about the gospel of grace in those days, but uh, I saw Pastor O'Hare after I had learned some truths, and I'm still learning, and uh, he we, uh, the two of us reminisced a little about the past, and he was so glad that I'd come to understand some of these things. Pastor O'Hare used to say, any exegesis that eliminates the sign gifts has to also eliminate water baptism. And I always remembered that, because as I checked it through, this is absolutely true in the book of Acts. When the sign nation was set aside, the sign gifts were retired, and with them, the ordinance of baptism. Now, usually the reason for the sign gifts disappearing from God's program today, the the reason that is usually given by most fundamentalists is that today we have the completed Bible. But that's only partly true. That's—I mean—that's only part of the truth. Sure, we have the completed Bible, and when the revelation is complete, there's no need for that which is in part. But the real reason for the sign gifts disappearing off the scene was because the sign nation was set aside. The sign gifts went with the sign nation. Though Paul had the signs of an apostle, as he tells us, in 1 Corinthians, he also baptized some. But he says in 1 Corinthians 1.17, as all of us know, Christ sent me not to baptize. And I've often wondered how anyone could say that the apostle Paul was keeping the Great Commission. How would it be possible for him to say, Christ sent me not to baptize? Because most certainly the 12 apostles were sent to baptize, were they not? Christ sent me not to baptize, Paul says. And some have tried to answer that statement by saying, well, Paul was too busy preaching the gospel. He didn't have time. But that isn't what he said. He said, Christ sent me not to baptize. And then he tells about baptizing a few. But this is the program from which he came out of. And, of course, he received the full orb revelation of the gospel of grace from the glorified Lord. And no longer was water baptism a part of God's program. One more passage of Scripture, Ephesians 4, please, as we close. You know the verse I'm referring to, I'm sure. The passage that has to do with the unity of the Spirit. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity, the word keep there is preserve. Endeavoring to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of the peace, there is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. As has been pointed out so often by our grace pastors We have here a spiritual unity. It's a unity made by the Spirit. And to interject a physical ceremony into seven spiritual realities is to do despite to the Word of God and to the grace of God. Everything here is spiritual. The body of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. How could it be anything else but the baptism of the Spirit, the one baptism? Galatians 3.27, 1 Corinthians 12.13, and we, we won't even turn to them, you are familiar with them. I'll repeat the locations again, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and Galatians 3, 27. We're baptized into Christ by the one baptism, a spiritual baptism. And this baptism identifies the believer with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the great truth of Romans 6. And Colossians 2, 9 to 13, and we won't have time to read that either. But those are basic passages on this subject of baptism. The Colossian passage speaks about a circumcision that is without hands. Likewise, a baptism without hands. And Romans 6 tells us how we are made one with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And we're raised to walk in newness of life. Speaking, of course, of our identification with Christ. I have said so often to our people in Denver that here we have the key to godly living. Reading a water ceremony into this important passage nullifies the truth. Is it any wonder that we have so many professing Christians who are so immature spiritually and who are so carnal and worldly in their living? They have failed to see that they died with Christ. They have failed to see that they were buried or identified with him. And they failed to see that they were identified further in his resurrection and are to walk in newness of life. Oh, I'll tell you, multitudes of people have missed this great and basic truth, our identification with Christ in the death baptism, the one baptism. The baptism of the Spirit, which puts us into Christ. Neither water baptism nor any other ceremony or rite can add anything to the believer who is complete in Christ, as Colossians 2, 9, and 10 say. If we're complete in Him, you can't add a thing, can you? Amen. People sometimes say, well, in fact, I remember when I was first saved, shortly after I was saved, I attended a church where they practiced immersion as a young lad in Minnesota, and the pastor said, of course, you want to be baptized, don't you, and join the church. So I said, yes. Yes. And after the ceremony, I came out of the baptismal tank and uh, a lady in the church came up to me and she said, well, now you are one of us. (laughs) You know, I've learned since that I was one of the Lord's long before then. And I want to say to you today, if you are not sure that you have been identified with Christ in that baptism which saves, you can trust the Savior right today. Oh, I would urge you to be sure that you've experienced the one baptism. And if you're not sure, you can believe the gospel that Christ died for your sins and was buried and arose again for you, and the work is all done, God wants you to appropriate that by faith for yourself. You know, it's so simple that sometimes preachers try to get people something else to do. And people get the idea that if I only do something, whatever it might be, raise the hand walk forward, kneel at an altar, or uh, do something, I'll be saved. But listen, you can do all of that and not be saved at all. The only way to be saved is to believe the gospel. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. By one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Have you been baptized into the body of Christ, then you'll be one of God's people today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for these minutes spent together in the Scriptures. May the Holy Spirit seal the truth to each heart. Help us to search the Scriptures for ourselves and see whether these things be true. We commit the result to Thee, and we thank Thee in the Savior's name. Amen.